Well, I want to invite you to please open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. And if you're joining us for the first time today, our church is studying through the Gospel of Mark, which is teaching us a lot about the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The theme of the Gospel, Jesus the servant, has been seen on full display. His ministry pace is remarkable, and he relentlessly pours himself out as he serves and fulfills the Father's will. And certainly that is that we can be mindful of, that we, as we think about our lives, that we would be uh, spend and be spent for the sake of the Father's will. And our, again, our second hour teaching is going to help us make calculated decisions as it relates to God's will. So certainly want to continue to put another plug in for that. The Gospel of Mark also has much to teach us about faith. As Jesus instructs his disciples, we're able to witness and observe how it is that they're growing in their faith as they follow him daily and as they learn to trust in him more deeply. And there's much to learn about believing and what it means to trust God. And I think that we've gained a sense of that over the last few Sundays. That as we, as we hear the teaching, as we hear the truths about who God is, the object of our faith, uh, the sovereign one, the powerful one, as we deal with the circumstances of lives, that we apply these truths to our lives accordingly. Well, there's also much to learn about unbelief. And we get to witness Jesus as he ministers and preaches the, the gospel of the kingdom to thousands, literally thousands upon thousands of unbelievers. And likewise, there are common aspects of unbelief that our passage will help us to, to see today. And Jesus is returning to his hometown of Nazareth. So one would think that if he's going back to the place that he grew up, if there was any place that he was going to have ministry traction, if there was any place where, where his relationships and the people that he's known in the past that were going to help him um, move forward in ministry and where there would be a response, it would be in his hometown. His family and those closest to him would honor him. And certainly his extended family and friends would want to come out and show their support, right? This is actually the Lord's second trip back to Nazareth. And the first time that he came, well, let's just say things didn't go so well. He went to the synagogue. He preached from Isaiah 61. And in this account, which is recorded in Luke chapter 4, after Jesus Reference that he was literally fulfilling this prophecy of Isaiah. The people of Nazareth, not only did they reject the message, but they drove him out of town and they tried to throw him off a cliff. So he left Nazareth miraculously. It says that he, he, he escaped through their midst, spared his life. He would die at the appropriate time, but he leaves and he goes on. He continues to minister. And he goes uh, throughout Galilee and he's going from synagogue to synagogue as we start to see in the Gospel of Mark and he's teaching. And now a year later, he returns to the very place that so painfully rejected him. And he wants to give his family, he wants to give his friends, neighbors, the people who know him, he, he wants to extend grace to them again. And talk about a picture of grace. 
It's enough that God would extend the opportunity for us to repent and believe one time, is it not? Just, just once. And what a picture of grace the Lord Jesus Christ is going back to them again. And this reflects his heart of mercy and compassion. How out on this second visit? Perhaps you've had a similar experience when you came to faith in the Lord. The, your joy, salvation, and your love for your unbelieving family friends made you inclined to go ahead and share the gospel with them. And you were thinking in your mind, well, because of the existing relationships, because I've grown up with my family and these friends, that's going to provide me with a little bit of leverage to win them over for Christ. And you quickly realize that your gospel efforts are met with resistance. What insights might our passage today be able to provide for you and I as we minister to unbelievers in the future. Let's tackle the text together. The title of our message is Enduring the Realities of Unbelief. And we'll begin by reading Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, and half of verse 6, because that's where the natural break takes place in the Greek. So we'll only read half of verse 6. Here's what it says, starting in verse 1 of the New American Standard. Jesus went out from there, and he came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Verse 4, Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. And we'll stop right there. This is such a depressing passage of Scripture from a human standpoint. It's one thing for the Lord Jesus Christ to not be recognized or mistreated as he's traveling from various places because people simply do not know him. But this is where he grew up. This is where his family lived. And so it's, it's discouraging and to me, I, maybe it is to you, just to see their hard-heartedness and their disinterest in him. Obviously, there's a lot that needs to be expanded upon as our passage provides four realities of unbelief that the Lord endured in his hometown of Nazareth that you and I may also have to endure for the sake of the gospel. And the first reality, it's in your notes, it's this. Unbelief is blind to the Lord's true identity. Jesus finished his ministry on the northwest shore of Galilee near Capernaum. And according to verse 1, it says that he went out from there. And he came into his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And here, Mark doesn't even mention that it's Nazareth, his hometown. And the reason for that is if we rewind the tape all the way back to Mark chapter 1, in verse 9 and verse 24, 
Mark has already made the connection of Nazareth to Jesus. And so he doesn't feel the need to mention it a third time. Nazareth is an obscure town. It's not even mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in the rabbinical writings of the Mishnah or the Talmud. Josephus had nothing to say about it. And outside of the 19 references in the New Testament connecting it to Jesus, there really isn't much to say about it. Archaeological excavations revealed some findings that Nazareth did exist during the time of Christ. And they noted, and, and it's a city that consisted of about 60 acres on a hillside, which is relevant to our story, and, well, or to the, the, the testimony that we'll read about in Luke 4, that it was on a, on, on a cliff, on the brow of a hill. And according to the excavations, there were about 500 people who lived in Nazareth. In Jesus' day, Nazareth, along with the entire region of South Galilee, was outside the mainstream of Jewish, uh, of Jewish life. And so this provides a little bit of a backdrop, if you will, for the comment that Nathaniel makes to Philip, a harsh remark in John 1.46, you'll recall it, is there anything good that can come out of Nazareth? Remember uh, that, that comment that he makes in John 1.46. From a Jewish standpoint, Nazareth wasn't, didn't make any substantial contributions to their way of life whatsoever. And so apparently it's viewed in a very negative light. We don't know all the details as to why. What we do know is that it was a small town. And in a town uh, smaller than 3,000 people, can I get a show? Anyone? Just me and Sam Cogburn. How about that? No one else? Everyone right here in the, 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 the greater metrop metropolitan area. Okay. Well, if you've been raised, Sam can testify. I can testify to this. When you're raised in a small town, news travels fast and everybody knows everybody. It's just the nature of small town life. And at some point, Jesus left Nazareth to begin his ministry to be baptized by John in the Jordan. And we also know that at one point afterward, in the first year of his ministry, he comes back to visit his hometown. And the record of that account is in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And I want to invite you to go ahead and turn there with me, if you will. Luke chapter 4, verses 16 through 30. And this will broaden our perspective on the existing unbelief in Nazareth. So I, I want to spend some time here. Starting in verse 16, it says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. So the synagogue official, you know, already had the reading set up, already lined up, hands him the scroll of Isaiah. And he opened up the book and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to pro proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
Verse 20, he closed the book. He gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Let's stop here just for a moment. What is Jesus ultimately saying? Literally, the one who is standing before you speaking now is fulfilling this prophecy right before your eyes. And if I can feature one aspect of the passage that he reads from Isaiah, it's this. He came to provide recovery of sight for the blind. And the condition of Israel, spiritual Israel at this point, was one of blindness. And the epitome of this is seen in the corrupt system of the religious Pharisees. It was legalistic. It was filled with self-righteousness. It was also a system that viewed Gentiles with great disdain. And that's why we, we're gonna, we won't have time to read it, but in verses 25 through 27, what's happening there is Jesus is providing two examples of Gentiles who suffered from certain conditions that, that were, were treated and given favor by God when there were thousands upon thousands of Israelites who suffered from the same condition but they were bypassed to, to minister to the Gentiles. All of this was going to ignite a firestorm after what he shares in verse 22, which we, we need to see, verse 22 through 24. And i got to say a couple things about verse 22. All were speaking well of him. Let me stop here. That, that is not a good translation. Um, of, of the Greek. The, the, the Greek verb right there is martareo. It's where we get the word martyr. It means to bear witness, to bear testimony to. And what do martyr, uh, martyrs do? They, they bear witness and literally give their lives for something, right? We're all familiar with what a martyr is. And so when this is a good hermeneutical principle for us to be reminded of. Context, context, context. It determines so much. And there's a reason why some translators arrive at, at this conclusion, and we don't have time to chase that rabbit right now, but I'm just giving you what it says in the Greek, and, and, and if you'll, you'll trust me on this one, this is what it literally says, literally giving witness. All were literally giving witness and wondering, they were astonished at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Again, they were gracious words that were being spoken of regardless of whether Jesus was saying. They, they weren't identifying that they were gracious words because Jesus was sharing them. They were gracious words because they were in the scriptures and they reveal the grace of God. I'm giving you a little insight as to why they translate it the way they do by providing that. Anyway, I'm, I, you guys know how I'm resisting a great temptation right now to talk more about that, but we need to continue. And they were saying, is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, no doubt you will quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Jesus is aware that they know of the surrounding miracles and his ministry now that's been taking place for approximately a year in Galilee. And they're going to say, physician, heal yourself. They're going to say, physician, show us 
not that he had to heal himself, but, but to, to heal, to perform miracles, show us. And he responds, verse 24, and he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. And Jesus is basically letting them know that it's going to be very difficult for them to believe that he is the Messiah fulfilling the passage in Isaiah 61. And we'll address the hometown prophet dynamic under our third point. But for now, we need to see the reality of our first point. And that's this. Unbelief is blind to the Lord's true identity. And if you don't believe that they're blind, look down at their response in verses 28 and 29. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up, they drove him out of the city, and led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. And so now we have Jesus returning a year later back to Nazareth. And Jesus by this time is somewhat of a celebrity. He's been out teaching. He's been out uh, uh, casting out demons and healing the sick and raising the dead. He's controlling the forces of nature. All these things that we're seeing on display that we've studied recently, performing countless miracles. And all of it is providing what? Further evidence of his deity and that he is the Messiah. By now, all that news, in those of us, Sam, we can relate, small town, we know that news comes back. You know, someone leaves your town, you want to know what they're doing? Where did they go? What are they, what are they doing now? Trust me. You didn't need a newspaper, you didn't need a printing press. You just needed word of mouth. And it traveled fast. And so this news has come back to those residing in Nazareth. How would he be received this time around? Well, let's go back to Mark 6. There's no description of a crowd amassing to see him. There's no house packed full of people with the entire city lined up outside trying to seek him out, which we've seen in previous accounts. There is literally no response. All he can do, it appears, is wait until the Sabbath. And at the heart of unbelief is the blindness to the true identity of Christ. And our Lord graciously and willingly endured their blindness on his first visit, right? And, and then he continues on with his ministry. It wasn't an impediment to, me, to him. He continued to go on. He teached. He performed all the miracles that validated that he is who he says that he is. And then he returns a second time to find them still blind. And again, few, if any, would imagine going back to a place to preach the gospel again where the first time that you had gone there, they attempted to throw you off a cliff. And may this encourage our hearts greatly when we're challenged to endure unbelief. There's a popular athlete in the news recently who was asked about Jesus, and he responded by saying, um, basically, I recognize Jesus. Gods always recognize other gods. That was, his, that was the response of this 
proud, unbelieving athlete. I recognize Jesus. Gods always recognize other gods. That's what he said. So naturally, you can imagine that this was offensive to a lot of believers, so much so that there was even a a pastor in Texas who um, sent a message while preaching from the, the pulpit about it that he was praying specifically that the Lord would send a lightning bolt to strike this athlete dead. Okay. That is a fleshly response. It's actually eerily reflective of James and John and Luke 9, right? When they're, when they're um, right after they've witnessed the Mount of Transfiguration, right? They've seen the, the, the reality and the awesome glimpse of all that God is on the Mount of Transfiguration. And then Jesus is continuing his ministry in, in Samaria, and this, the Samaritans don't receive him. And so James and John, they do what? We know the story well. Lord, want us to go ahead and just call down some holy fire, some heavenly fire? Want us to, want us to bring it down? Jesus doesn't pray that lightning bolts will come down and that we as believers would send lightning bolts down upon them. But I think that if we're honest, I think we can all struggle to endure the, the unbelieving responses as people misrepresent and misunderstand the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet the thing we need to see is that it did not deter him from seeking and saving that which was lost. And though the red carpet wasn't rolled out for him, when he came back to his hometown, he continued to faithfully minister and fulfill his mission. And we must not be deterred from fulfilling ours as well. We will need to endure the fact that unbelief is blind to the Lord's true identity as we persevere. Well, there's a second reality that the Lord endured, and it's in your notes. Unbelief discredits the Lord by focusing on his humanity. Look at verse 2. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands. Jesus' custom, we know by this point, was to go from synagogue to synagogue. And verse 2 indicates that many were fans of his ability. Specifically, his words, his wisdom, his works, they, they captivated their attention. And this was saying a lot considering the historical background of rabbis and traveling teachers that, that the Jews were, were exposed to. Listen to how commentator James Edwards describes it. No people could boast of more prophets, learned scribes, and rabbis than the Jews. The field in which Jesus distinguished himself as a teacher was, in other words, crowded and competitive. His prestige caused a dilemma for those acquainted with him, however, for he had not been apprenticed to a famous rabbi, nor could his wisdom be accounted for at home. And then he references John 7.15, where it says the Jews then were astonished, saying, how has this man become taught, having never been educated? 
So the people are absolutely amazed at his teaching, but it's in a negative sense. And they appear to be irritated by the fact that there's no real explanation for why he has these abilities. And rather than celebrate you know, the Lord's giftedness and what this is really pointing to, the townspeople are skeptical and attempt to discredit his ministry by pointing to his family. Look at verse 3. They ask, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And if there's one way to discredit deity, it's by connecting it to and pulling it down to humanity. And we see the cults and the false religions of our day. This is how they handle Christ. Just look at, consider the, the most popular religions of the day. The, the nation of Islam recognizes Jesus as a prophet and a good man. Jehovah's Witnesses, they recognize Jesus as the greatest man who ever lived. Orthodox Jews ironically maintain the same view today when it comes to Jesus. He, a false messiah. He was merely a man. Interestingly, from the time of Christ onward, many rabbis became increasingly hostile toward Jesus, as we might expect, because they thought of him as a false messiah. And this, if, if you've ever done any reading about how the Jews responded um, after and what they've written and what's been continued to be written about the Lord Jesus Christ, believe me, there's a lot that's out there that you could read. And it's not good. And we see this, um, this response of harsh criticism towards the Lord. And this, from, from the church standpoint, this is why we see before the medieval times, you know, the anti-Semitic response in retaliation to some of those things that we're saying. In fact, the, the, the church in the 13th century started even going through the rabbinical writings to make sure that they were saying things that were so dishonoring. I read some of it, just, you know. It's where we get all the stuff, you know, all the Da Vinci Code, you know, Jesus was married to Mary Magdalene. I mean, there, there's, I'm exercising restraint to just even share some of the things that, that I read, but it's, it's, it's just awful, some of the things that they say. Well, not ironically, this has become the default position for other cults and false religions when dealing with Jesus' deity, they simply discredit him as solely human, and then they continue on with more false teaching. And if we put verse 3 under the microscope, we'll gain a sense of the derogatory nature of what's being said. So let's do this. We're going to see three things that are ultimately going to come out as we put this verse under the microscope. First, Jesus is referred to as a carpenter. There was, nor is there anything negative about being a carpenter or a tradesman from a Jewish standpoint, but the truth be told, tradesmen would have been very limited in their education. And then the people's estimation, if Jesus is speaking above the caliber of the most elite rabbis, the most powerful preachers that they have ever heard preach God's word, what is going on? It doesn't add up. Add to the fact that they knew everything that there was about him. He had grown up among them. He was one of their own. They, they had seen Jesus where he played as a child. 
They, they had watched every aspect of his life. They were familiar with what Joseph did. They were familiar with what Mary did. They were familiar with what his half-siblings did. They thought they knew him. To them, Jesus was just another boy from Nazareth who grew up to be a common man. They really did. They thought they knew him, or so they thought. And by the way, this is their pride on full display. Just so you know, they're basically saying, we know who you are. We know who you are. We've witnessed you. We've witnessed our whole life. Witnessed you our whole life. We, we know you can't possibly be the Messiah. We know who you are. Well, next in the verse, Jesus is identified with his mother. Is not this the son of Mary? Why would they say this? By the way, the son of Mary only appears here in, in the scripture. It was a common practice amongst the Jews for whenever a, a boy was um, identified, for him to be identified with his father, whether uh, he was, the dad was dead or alive. And the only instance where the mother would be referred to is if they didn't know who the father was. And during his former visit, you, if you recall, those are observant. Back in Luke 4.22, do you remember what they referred to him? As there? As Joseph's son, right? So this is, this is progressively more derogatory in nature. Listen to what D. Edmund Hebert writes, and he's quoting Ethelbert Stauffer from his work called Jesus and His Story. And this is what he says, The son of Mary was now used as a deliberate insult, stamping Jesus as a bastard. An illegitimate child is what that means. He points out that custom required that so long as the son of an adulteress lives a life pleasing to God, nothing insulting shall be said about his birth. But if he becomes an apostate, his illegitimate birth shall be spoken of publicly and unsparingly. Consequently, the people of Nazareth now recalled the rumors concerning his birth and openly threw the fact at him as an insult. Later, rabbis bluntly called Jesus the son of an adulteress and even claimed to know the name of his illegitimate father. And then there's this other commentator by the name of Cranfield that Hebert mentions who says, he says that he accepts the view of John 8.41 and 9.29 imply the rumors of Jesus' illegitimate birth did circulate during his ministry and holds that Mark's account here reflects those rumors and accusations. This is, this is a, a huge insult. Huge insult. Well, last but not least, in verse 3, Jesus is identified with his half-siblings. Is not this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Why would they say this? Again, pulling deity down. Make connections, right? The Lord Jesus Christ lived his entire life, never committed one sin, honored, fulfilled the law perfectly, right? We know that. But let me share this with you. Mary was a sinner that needed to be saved by grace. James, Judas, Joseph, Jesus' sisters, they needed to be saved. They were sinners saved by grace. 
So this strategy makes perfect sense. Is God high and lifted up? Is he exalted? Are his ways and his thoughts just so much higher than ours? Are they not? They are. And in attempts to discredit Jesus, the cults and the teachers, they must, the false teachers, they must pull him down. They must make every connection at the human level. He's just like one of them. He's connected with his siblings. He's a sinner just like they were. Interestingly, the Catholic Church tries to make a preemptive strike on the, the Immaculate Conception, t- teaching that, that Mary wasn't born in original sin. That's a whole other... If those of you who have a Catholic background like I do, um, you, you see even their attempts to deify Mary. And what better way to keep people from claiming Jesus is God than to put him in the same biological camp as his earthly family. And the end result is seen at the end of verse 3. They took offense at him. Scandalon. It was, it was a stumbling block. It was scandalous. And like it or not, sometimes you and I And everyone who believes when we encounter uh, unbelieving family, we have to endure the same reality sharing the gospel with some of our our friends who who try to throw mud back in our face. Reminding us of of, of who we were before Christ. Who are you for talking about my sin? You, you, You used to do the same thing. You used to go out and get drunk. You used to party. You used to... You used to cheat, lie, steal, do everything you could to make yourself look good. Know your family. Know who you used to run with. Who do you think you are? And let me tell you, church, this is why it's so effective when, when you witness to somebody to use your personal testimony because in doing so, you point to yourself as the sinner. You point to yourself as, as the one who has been saved by God's grace and you acknowledge your sin and that can indirectly shine this, the, the, the light that they know. They know that they're the same thing that you're describing. And we should hold up the mirror of God's word and the gospel to, to help others see that we are just as desperate and in need of God's saving grace just as much as they are. Well, this creates a natural segue to our third reality. Unbelief distorts the view of the Lord's messengers. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. This is a proverb that was common in the day that Jesus is is sharing. And he also mentioned it in Luke chapter 4. And Jesus did this often. He used... Common language. He used proverbs and things that the people were familiar with. So he, com- he compares himself to a prophet, a role that his listeners were very familiar with. Here Hebert says, their rejection of him was explained by the commonly observed fact that those who know the prophet best think least of him. And like the prophets, the Lord's familiarity to his own people it distorted and hindered their ability. For, for They couldn't see him for who he was. 
And unlike the other prophets, the difference here is, right, this is God in the flesh, right? And apparently Jesus encountered similar responses with his hometown, his relatives, and his family. And each layer, you'll notice in the progression of the verse, each layer is more intimate, more familiar, moving from the town, relatives, to his own household. And according to John 7, 5, Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him during his ministry. And we only have a record of James and Jude coming to faith after his death and resurrection. Did all of Jesus' half-siblings end up getting saved and professing faith? We, we don't know the answer to that question. Interesting to consider. In our earlier study of Mark chapter 3, verse 21 in verse 31, we saw that it was Jesus' own people who thought that he had lost his senses. And this also included his own family. And so they show up and they're, they're actually doing what? They're inhibiting his ministry. They're coming to, 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 to hijack the Lord and to take him back. They think he's lost his senses. And they're, 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 they felt like they could do that based on their familial relationship with him one commentator said this exposure to jesus and the gospel is no guarantee of faith indeed apart from faith exposure to the gospel inoculates as often as it enlivens and this is also why jesus made it perfectly clear in mark chapter 3 verse 35 that whoever does the will of god that is my mother that is my brother that is my sister faith and the true family of god are inseparably linked and unbelief distorts the view of the lord's messengers and this does not exclude even those who grew up with jesus and i think a good principle of application that we can draw from this is that it might be especially difficult for us to endure the unbelief of our close family and friends, and due to their familiarity with us, that it might make sharing the gospel more difficult, not less difficult. Those in the church that, that know me know I have a twin brother. He was the person that I was closest to growing up, best friend growing up. And after I got saved, I remember making a concerted effort to share the gospel with him. And for some reason, those conversations and those interactions never really progressed. Then I responded to God's call in my life. I went on, I went to seminary, I was trained, called vocationally to be a pastor, right? God's messenger, Continued to share Christ with him and no response. And then you know what happened? A guy that he'd never met when he went away on a business trip, ironically to Northern California, a guy shared the gospel with him when he was right after he had gone through a divorce and pointed directly at him and said, you need God's forgiveness. My brother made a profession of faith. Now that's encouraging, but those who know the story also know that my brother lived out the parable of the soils because the desires for the things of this world and the deceitfulness of riches came in and they choked it out. And there was 
resistance again. But you know what happened? That man's name was Chad Coy. Then there was another, my twin brother is Jay, full name Jason, but there was another guy by the name of Jason Rowe who invited my brother to come to Bible study, invited him to a men's conference where he got to hear Matt Chandler speak. And guess what? He made a true profession of faith. He even talked about why his first profession wasn't real. Was baptized. Is walking with the Lord. And I believe that this is a, why we should respond in praying Matthew 9, 38, that we would beseech the Lord of the harvest to send workers into the harvest. Amen? Right? Listen, it's not about us. But the reality is, is that we have an advantage that some of those that are closest to a person that maybe we're not that close with, we have an advantage if we look at the, and consider this text. And think about it for a moment that if you're traveling on a business trip, I mean, we all, do we all not have loved ones that we want to see saved? Do we not, church? Amen? Coworkers, loved ones, family, friends. Imagine sitting on a flight next to somebody, debating about whether it's seizing the opportunity to maybe talk to this person. It's easier to go to sleep, share the gospel. Think about if that was your brother or sister, unsaved brother or sister sitting next to that person, you'd, and, and that person's a believer, what, what would you want them to do? You'd want them to go... For, <laughs> you'd want them to go for broke on the gospel, right? Spell it all out for them. You know, and it, it's such a beautiful picture of the interdependency of, the, of God's plan of, of redemption and how it's built in that there's, there's ways for us to, to, to witness and share Christ and we can be a blessing in that regard. It's just, it's just amazing. Now, before moving on, I want to make it clear that I'm not saying that this means that we don't share the gospel and pursue those closest with us. The pr principle that I think that we can pull away from this passage is that we may need to endure the same reality of unbelief that the Lord and his messengers faced when they witnessed to those they grew up with. All right, where's... These are compounding realities of unbelief that our Lord had to graciously endure. Unbelief is blind to the Lord's true identity. Unbelief discredits the Lord by focusing on his humanity. Unbelief distorts the view of the Lord's messengers. And fourth and finally, unbelief dismisses the need for the Lord's ministry. Look at verse 5. And he could do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And this verse really captures the essence of their unbelief. How many people did I share at the beginning of the message were, were guesstimated to live in Nazareth? Is anybody numbers people? 500, that's right. Approximately 500. And how many people did he have access to to lay his hands on and heal? A few A handful. Verse 5 says that he could do no miracle there except for these few. Why was Jesus limited 
to doing so few miracles? Think about that question. Logically. Because nobody came to see him. He, a few did. And he did a few miracles. But nobody came. He was ready. He was standing there willing to receive any burden of life that they had for them. He was standing right there waiting for them. Any leprosy, any hemorrhaging, anybody near death, anybody suffering from any condition, he was right there available, ready and waiting for them to come. And he didn't come. All they had to do was come to him. And this whole world in many ways is just like Nazareth. Is it not? That the Lord Jesus Christ stands there ready, waiting, willing, any point in time to offer forgiveness to anyone who will just come. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy, lady, uh, heavy laden. Revelation says the same thing. Come, come, come to me. And yet unbelief completely dismisses the need for the Lord's ministry. Listen, if you're someone here today, right? If you're someone here today and you, you got invited, maybe today, uh, met, a, met a few guests, maybe you, you just got invited, somebody invited you, and you, you've, you've never come to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness, today is the day. Today is the day that you fall down and acknowledge the reality that he is a perfectly holy God that cannot have any sinner stand in his presence and that through the grace of the gospel and through the Lord Jesus Christ that he will forgive you of all your sin. He will give you a brand new lease on life. He will cause your heart to be born again to live for his purposes. And this world has heard about the miracles of salvation in the church, which travels back to their ears, much like the news of the miracles traveled back to those in Nazareth, yet their unbelief dismisses their need for the gospel. And what was our Lord's response? The beginning of verse 6 says it all. And he wondered at their unbelief. Thamazo in the Greek, which literally means was astonished, marveled at their unbelief. It could be rendered amazed at their lack of faith. To close our message, I want to read what James Edwards writes as he, he closes this passage in his commentary. He says this, He's a pretty smart guy. So hopefully you'll be able to track with what he's, what he's saying. I know we've got a bunch of smart people in our church. What amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness and propensity for evil, but its hardness of heart and unwillingness to believe in him. That is the greatest problem in the world, and herein lies the divine judgment on humanity. Humanity wants a spectacular sign of God or, like the devil, a great display of divine power. But it does not want God to become a human being like one of us. And he refers to John 1.11. 
The people of Nazareth see only a carpenter, only a son of Mary, only another one of the village children who has grown up and returned for a visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, then they would believe. The servant image of the son is too prosaic to garner gullibility. God has identified too closely with the world for the world to behold him. Too closely with the town of Nazareth for it to recognize in Jesus the Son of God. Humanity wants something other than what God gives. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept, to accept the God who condescends to us in an only, only a carpenter, the son of Mary. End quote. And unbelief is committed to dismissing the need for Christ. And our ministry as Christians is what? What is it? It's for us to wit bear witness and to help them see their need. Amen? Amen? To see their need. So I got a little bit of a challenge for you. We'll tie it in with the Super Bowl. So I'm sure some of you are going to have an opportunity to spend some time with family and friends this afternoon. Just wanted to give you a Super Bowl challenge. Can I do that? Can you find somebody? Can you share your testimony today with somebody? Can you make it a point to just take an opportunity to, to find somebody who, and it can be another believer, just to, just to encourage them by what God's done in your life, someone who hasn't heard your testimony. And can you just talk about God's story of redemption in your life? Can you exalt the Savior, by just talking about him. I'm thinking about, as it relates to just application, because we hear messages week in and week out. I came up with three words that I also will give to you for application. Learn, love, live. Learn the truth about what God's word does. That's why we come every week. We want to learn the truth about what God's word says, right? We want to love the truth. We cultivate our love as, it, as it, it shows us more and more about him. It cultivates and stimulates our love so that we can respond in pure motives. And then it gives us a chance to live it out for his glory. Amen and amen. Let's close in prayer. Father, we just bow our heads right now thanking you for this, this rich study in your word. Thank you for the, the graciousness of the Lord Jesus Christ to return to his hometown after being treated so harshly, to, after being rejected so severely that in your grace and in your goodness, you have endured the reality of unbelief for the sake of your children. And we are your children. And there was a point in time where we didn't believe <laughs> and you endured the reality of our unbelief, all of it. And you granted us time to repent, to turn to you and to trust in you. And now you allow us to bear witness to these truths about what our Lord endured so that we can endure all things for the sake of the gospel. Help us to continue to 
learn more about these truths. Help us to love them. Help us to cultivate a love for the truth and how it can bless our lives and how it can give glory to you as we live these truths out. We give you so much thanks. You are our great God. You are high and lifted up. You are worthy of our exaltation. We give you thanks and praise, asking all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.